0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. I don't know if you realize this or not, but we're already at the end of 1 Kings. And so tonight, we're actually going to bridge on into 2 Kings. So tonight, 1 Kings 20 through 2 Kings chapter 2. And uh, we're going to look at some of the, the overarching stories here. Uh, just like last week, this week's narrative is still slowed down. I Remember last week, I talked about how in the previous weeks, we were going... Uh, like a buzzsaw through those kings of the north and the south, and they died and they reigned and and so on and so forth. And then last week we slowed down. We really looked at two major characters, Ahab and Elijah. And the the biggest story last week was the the challenge at Mount Carmel, which God will answer in fire. Elijah prays to Yahweh, he answers in fire. They slaughtered the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Uh, but Ahab and Jezebel still don't repent. So the story is still slowed down. The narrative is still slowed here as we go into 2 Kings. It will pick up again, and we'll go back to that pattern sort of, uh, of going through the kings as we did. But for this week, we're still focused on mainly Ahab and Elijah. And this week, we will also see the death of Ahab uh, as his reign comes to an end. And that also ends the book of 1 Kings. So much like you know, first and second Samuel are devoted to Saul and then David. First uh, Kings really ends up being a story leading to Ahab, and sort of that downward spiral of Israel's wicked kings leading to the worst. So says the author, King Ahab, uh, son of King Omri. Elisha will appear as we go into Second Kings as Elijah's successor. And if my Hebrew is right, Elijah is the Lord is God. Elisha, I think, is the Lord hears or the Lord listens, I think. I didn't actually look that up, but it makes sense. Uh, Sha, as in like Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel. Sounds like that. That sounds right. So you check your study Bibles and tell me if I'm right or tell me if I'm wrong. Elijah is then carried away into heaven. And another, probably one of the uh, the other famous story from the, the, these books, uh, Elijah being carried off into heaven and in the chariots of fire. You can hear the theme song playing in the background, can't you? Chariots of fire. Yeah. I've never seen that movie. Anybody seen that movie? Yeah, it... Is it a reference to Elijah and the chariots of fire? Oh, because he was a seven, no, he was a, he was like a Presbyterian, wasn't he? What was his name? Somebody tell me his name. Elijah was a Presbyterian. No, he was a Baptist. He went down into the Jordan all the way in. Uh, No, the guy that ran, Eric Liddell, right? Yeah. Chariots of Fire. Yeah, there's the theme song. Anytime you see someone running in slow motion on a movie or cartoon, they play that theme song from Chariots of Fire. I think it's a reference to uh, Elijah's Chariots of Fire, but I've already gone way off the rails here. Um, The big picture for tonight, in 1 Kings 20 through 2 Kings 2, we see God patiently bringing about his purposes for his people in judgment and salvation. Now, on your paper there, uh, you see that big picture, judgment, salvation, you might want to circle those two uh, words. Oftentimes, I think when we read the Old Testament, we read the New Testament, we fail to see both aspects happening at the same time. Uh, and, And we often picture judgment and God's condemnation and his judgment as some sort of failure on his part. In other words, he's tried his hardest to win people. They don't listen, so he judges them. Now, in a a sense, that's true. They don't listen. He judges them. But God's purposes, listen, his sovereignty is accomplished through both judgment and salvation. Salvation isn't God wins and judgment is God loses, both are his purpose and his will. And so we'll, we will see him accomplish his purposes in judgment and salvation. You go uh, back into the book of Joshua, one of the primary stories, the fall of Jericho. The walls fall down, there's judgment, but what happens at the same time? God's people take the land. In Revelation, we see judgment, 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 but also the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. And that's, not, that's really two sides of the same coin. Again, not God losing and God winning, but God winning through salvation and winning through judgment. And we'll see that all the way through first um, and second kings as well. First Kings then, chapter 20, where we will start tonight, really details one war, uh, broken down into two military conflicts. Uh, Ahab gets engaged in two military conflicts with uh, Syria. Uh, And the king, Ben-Hadad, there in verse 1, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathers all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots. And when he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it, he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel. He said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver, your gold are mine, your best wives, and your children are also mine. Now, it's interesting that um, this is bin hadad he rolls up on Israel, he says, Hey, I'm here, your city's mine, your treasure's mine, your, your women are mine, your children are mine. So, you know, get used to it. And Ahab, remarkably, in verse 4, he responds, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Ahab's immediate response to this threat is to capitulate and to give in and to give up. Now, as you go through the next verses, you'll see that that changes once he gets with the elders. And, and the, the answer to Ben-Hadad suddenly changes by the end, by verses 11 and 12. And that, in, that sparks this war. So Ben-Hadad comes. He's going to take the city. At first, Ahab says, sure, it's all yours. Do what you want. Uh, but the elders and such come in, change Ahab's mind. And that's what sparks this conflict with Ben-Hadad. Interesting also that in verse 1 and verse 13, we see a break in the pattern as we meet a different king and a different prophet. To this point, we've been mainly following the trajectory of Israel and Judah. And so as we're being introduced to kings, more often than not, they've been either kings of Judah or kings of Israel. And we're kind of staying within that storyline. So it should be jarring to us to come into chapter 20, verse 1, and we're introduced not to uh, the next king in line after, um, sorry, after, where'd he go? After, a- after Omri and then after Ahab, but we're introduced to this king, Ben-Hadad, of a different land, Syria. And then in verse 13, or as we've been sort of dealing with Elijah, and we were introduced to Elisha at the end of chapter 19, we are introduced to another prophet, an unnamed prophet. Now, if you are paying attention uh, couple, last week, maybe two weeks ago, when Elijah was complaining to the Lord, you know, I, even I, only am left of all the prophets. I'm the only one here doing your, your will. This is God proving to Elijah, uh, proving to us, the reader, that it's not just about Elijah. In fact, it's not just about Israel. God's sovereignty, his rule, his reign, his control, is not limited to Israel or to Elijah. Now this is a theme that's gonna come up later as we continue to go through the text and the war with Syria. Because there was a common concept in the Middle East, what we call the ancient Near East, uh, Syria, Babylon, all those places we read about in the Bible, that we have our gods and you have your gods. our gods might be the god of our nation and our kingdom, but your gods might very well be the god of your nation and your kingdom, or your land, or there might be a god for the moon and the mountains and the water and the stars. And so in that system, uh, you know, the Babylonians, the Syrians didn't care that you worshipped a different god. They just thought, well, that's your god and this is our god. And so as you go through the Old Testament, what the Lord is continually trying to prove to his people is as they continue to slip into idolatry or adding other gods to the one true God, God keeps wanting to remind them, I am the only one true and living God. And there is not a God for the Syrians and a God for the Israelites. There is one God who is over all of them. And so as we see this story unfold, even here, we're seeing God's sovereign actions take place not just in Israel, but on behalf of this pagan king, Ben-Hadad of Syria. Also, Elijah isn't the only prophet. We knew that Obadiah was hiding 50 prophets in one cave and 50 prophets in another. There's a whole lot of prophets of the Lord. And God says, I've kept 7,000 that haven't bowed their knees to Baal. And so here we're introduced to an unnamed prophet in verse 13. A different prophet, a different king. God's sovereignty and his control over all things is not limited to a region or a people or a person. In all of this, God also shows his faithfulness to his people despite their sin. Uh, the prophet comes in verse 13, comes to give a message to Ahab. Now, if we were giving a message to Ahab on behalf of the Lord, at this point, the Lord should, you know, in our minds, should be done with Ahab right? I mean, he's a wicked king, Jezebel's a wicked queen, they've taken the people down this road, but again, here we see God's sovereignty, that even in the midst of Ahab's wicked rule and the people's sin, God says via this prophet in verse 13, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude, the Syrians? Behold, I will give into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that, you shall know because I do this for you, that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord of hosts, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts and there were two, uh, 232. Now, if you're paying attention, the first command is not to summon the army. The first command isn't to summon the soldiers and the troops with their armor. What is the first command? to summon 232 servants of these governors. And God says, using this very backwards way of doing military, we're going to send these untrained, not soldiers, not military servants before you to ignite this war with the Syrians. Not only that, but I'm going to defeat them for you. I will give them into your hand this very day. All for what reason? So that you will know that I, Yahweh, am God. And so we see God's faithfulness to his people. Listen, we see God's faithfulness to Ahab. Despite all the junk that Ahab's been involved with and where he's taken the people, we see God being faithful to his promises despite the wickedness of Ahab and despite the wickedness of the people. As we go further into the text that goes into the battle, I want you to notice a few things. When we're asking the question, how do we see God's sovereignty on display? Uh, verse 16, they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, the tents, uh, tents for his army. Uh, the, thir- the 32 kings who helped him, uh, drinking himself drunk. Now you would think this is just a, a passing detail that has no bearing on the story. It's just making a fool out of Ben-Hadad and showing his foolishness and, and his drunkenness. Now, what if God, in his sovereignty, is using that very act, that he is drinking to the point of drunkenness, to accomplish his purpose? Uh, notice back in verse 12. While Ben-Hadad heard this message, he was drinking with the kings in the booth. You see God's hand at work in this, that this message comes to Ben-Hadad, that the people are not just going to give themselves to him. They are going to attack. You need to get your army ready. And when does God so choose to do this? He's used Ahab's stalling. He's used Ahab's stalling to this point to get there, to the point where he's drinking, he's drinking, he's drinking, and he's drunk. And now God says, now send in the servants to take uh, the Syrian army. Uh, The prophet came near in verse 22 to the king of Israel, said, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. Uh, So earlier, the servants approach. The king is drunk. They drive the the Syrians out for this first time, but there's this warning. Although you've driven them out this first time, uh, there will be another conflict come spring. I want you to look in verse 23 at what the Syrians say in regards to that prophet's threat. The servants of the king of Syria said to him, okay, we've lost this first battle. You were drunk, and the servants came and surprised us, and and we lost this first battle, but we're gonna come back in spring, and we're gonna win the war. And, And here's our strategy, verse 23. Their gods, this is the Syrians talking about the Israelites, their gods are the gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. You hear that ancient Near Eastern mindset coming through, that polytheistic, idolatrous mindset. Oh, I know what the problem was. I mean, sure, you were drunk and and wasted, and you were no help, but here's what the real problem was. We were fighting on the hills, and, and they're really good at fighting on the hills because their God, Yahweh, whoever that is, he's God of the hills. So here's our strategy. Let's get them down in the valley. Let's get them down in the plains so their God of the hills will be of no help to them down in the plains. Verse 28, the prophet is called to answer this very challenge. The man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord. See, the Lord knows what they were saying. Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude in your hand, and you shall know, here it is again, you shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, And on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day and the rest fled up to the city of Afek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Now the battle culminates here in that final battle when 127,000 Syrians are struck dead, going after the Israelites, who they thought they had the upper hand over because their god is the God of the hills, and God says, you know what, just to show how ignorant and stupid that kind of idolatry is, let them come to us in the, in the plains, and we'll defeat them there too. Now, I want you to notice how God is defending his honor, defending his glory, defending his worship, not necessarily for the sake of Ahab, not necessarily for even the sake of the sinful people of Israel. I mean, Ahab deserves defeat. The Israelites deserve defeat, and he gives them defeat here and there to to punish them for their sins. But oftentimes, the Lord says, you know what? So that other people will know that I am the one true God, I'm going to give you the victory anyway. And so he proves he's not just the God of the hills, he's the God of the valleys. Now, how many times can we reference Vestal Goodman through a series in First and Second Kings? Uh, God of the mountain, you know the song? He's still God of the valleys. I don't know if it comes from this, but it'll make you shout. But it's about, it's about this, this passage here, that God is not just the God of the mountains, he's a God in the valleys. And, and, and Ahab sees that firsthand, and the Syrians see that firsthand. Sometimes I think when we enter into uh, trials in our lives and and things are happening and we we pray to the Lord to fix something or to do something, we should remember that sometimes the Lord answers prayers the way you ask for, uh, and sometimes the Lord does things in your life in the way that you wanted, maybe not even for your sake, though he loves you and he cares for you. I think about Psalm 23 uh, You lead me in paths of righteousness. You know the next part? for your namesake, for your holiness, for your glory, so that all the glory and all the honor and the worship goes back to God. and we, we reap the benefits of that blessing sometimes, but sometimes God is just doing stuff to show off, and he has every right to do that because he's God. And he wants you and everyone else around you to know that he is the one true God, and he does that here, not just on the mountaintops, but in the valleys, proving to Israel and the Syrians who the one true God is. In disobedience, these next verses, um, his whole army has been defeated. And in verse 32, Ben-Hadad begs Ahab, please let me live. And so his army defeated, he's at the mercy of Ahab, he's begging for his life. And down in verse 34, at the very end of verse 34, Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. He made a covenant with him and let him go. Ahab spared the life of this king, disobeying the command of God back in Deuteronomy, back in Joshua, that when you make war against these pagan armies, you are to devote the entire army to destruction. You're to devote the entire city to destruction. Well, here we see these echoes in Ahab's failure of other failures. One was back in 1 Kings 13, remember when that prophet um, encountered the other prophet and he wasn't allowed to go inside, but he did anyway because the prophet said, oh, I got a word from the Lord too. And we, remember, we saw the binding nature of the word of God even on the prophets, that even when that prophet disobeyed God, remember he was traveling and a lion killed him. It didn't eat him, it just killed him. And he left his donkey along too, so that as everyone came by and saw that prophet, they knew this was a prophet that disobeyed God. But how about 1 Samuel 15? Do you remember another similar story where a king spared the life of another pagan king? Remember, Saul spared the life of the king uh, Amalekites, I think. Am I right? The Amalekites. And uh, remember Nathan the prophet came near and he said, Saul, did you devote everything to destruction? And Saul's like, yeah, we, we killed them all. We devoted everybody to destruction and we won. Remember Nathan's like, what's that? <laughs> what's that sound I hear? It sounds like some sheep bleeding. Oh, yeah, we kept some sheep alive. Oh, because I wanted to sacrifice them to the Lord. But also we kept the king alive and spared his life. And Nathan calls Saul on it. And it's actually kind of the end of the story for Saul when when the Lord abandons Saul and turns his face to David. So we have these echoes in this failure on Ahab's part, this disobedience on Ahab's part. We see these echoes of people and kings that disobeyed the Lord and incurred God's judgment on them. And in verse 42, as part of the judgment that comes because of this disobedience, Ahab's death is foretold. Look at verse 42. He said to him, Thus says the Lord, this is the prophet, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be hit for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel, that's Ahab, went to his house vexed and sullen and came out to Samaria. So here is a punishment for his disobedience. We have God promising through this prophet Ahab's own death and the demise of his kingdom. And you'd think, well, we're going to turn the page, and that's the end of, of Ahab's story. But there's actually one more story that comes. And it's, it's interesting that you go from this wide, broad storyline of nations and wars and kings and armies. And then you come down to this one poor man <laughs> named Naboth. And you know the story of Naboth's vineyard. Uh, vineyard. Ahab's sin is revealed in this conflict over Naboth's vineyard. It says in chapter 21, verse 1, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab. This is the second time we've seen this pattern, right? Oh, poor, sullen Ahab goes into his house, vexed and sullen. He's pouting because of what Naboth the Jezreelite said to him. For he said, "I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers." And he laid down on his bed and turned his face away and I would eat no food. Now I could not help but see my little Lily, my little two-year-old Lily, pouting. And you know, when she doesn't want you, when she's mad, and you say, "Come here and give me a hug," and she just no to see Ahab pouting like that and I think the Lord intends for us to see that this childishness on behalf of Ahab again vexed and sullen and eating no food and I'm just going to lay in my bed because this man would not give me what I wanted in verses 5 through 16 though Jezebel says why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food and Ahab lays it all out there well I really wanted this vineyard and Naboth wouldn't give it to me Jezebel and so Jezebel says I'll tell you what I'll get it for you and she arranges this whole elaborate scheme to get Nadab, or Nadab to get Naboth at this fast with the elders, and then pay two people to falsely accuse him, saying Naboth cursed God and cursed the king, and this would get Naboth stoned, and then once he's dead, Ahab, you can take his vineyard for yourself, and that whole thing unfolds through verse sixteen, revealing Ahab. To be the puppet king that we see he truly is. And who's the puppet master in all of it? Well, it's none other than Jezebel. In fact, if you go down to verse 25 of chapter 21, look at what the author himself says. There was none who sold, him, uh, sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. Every step of the way, Jezebel was doing exactly what she's doing here inciting her husband to idolatry, inciting her husband now to what amounts to murder. Ahab had no regard for Israel's people, and he had no regard for Israel's law. There was nothing in the law that allowed for the king to take the property of someone just because they died. But because it was adjacent to the palace... And Ahab didn't care about the people, and he didn't care about the Lord, and he didn't care about the law. And incited by wicked Jezebel, Ahab takes what he wants at the cost of this man's life, showing no regard for his people, his God, or his law. We see one common enabling, here's a modern word for us, toxic factor, that of Jezebel. Jezebel. How many wonderful sermons have been preached on Jezebel? The enticement of a wicked woman, right? But in this instance, it's true. Elijah returns to pronounce final judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. Interestingly enough, God raises uh, Elijah to come and do this because of this, very, uh, because of this very incident. Look in verse 17. After having this sort of other episode with the other prophet, who came and ministered. In verse 17, we see the return of Elijah the Tishbite, same one. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, verse 19, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick your own blood." God has style, doesn't he? He tells Elijah, I want you to go. And not just, you know, you're going to die. You've done wickedly and I'm going to kill you. But tell it to him this way. Just like the dogs are licking up Naboth's blood, the dogs are going to lick up your blood. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? There he is again, you troubler of Israel. You're the problem. You're the stick in the mud. He answered, Uh, Elijah answered, I found you because you have sold yourself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off. Uh, from, uh, from Ahab, from every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And to Jezebel, the Lord says, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. And anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now, this isn't just poetic. I mean, it is poetic, and it's, it's, it's got flair. But there's a point to it. Not being buried and not having a proper burial would have terrified ancient Jews. And so the judgment of not just dying, but that the dogs are going to eat your corpse, or the birds are going to eat your corpse, was like putting coals into the fire of judgment. is—is is topping it off with even more judgment. Not just are you going to die and your kingdom's going to come to an end and I'm going to burn your whole city to the ground, but also your body's going to be picked apart by dogs. Your body's going to be picked apart by birds. And so there's that added judgment on there. Now in verses 25 through uh, really the end of that chapter, we see... Uh, Ahab, repent. Uh, Beginning in verse 25, uh, sorry, verse 27, when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about (laughs) dejectedly. He went about dejectedly. Now, it's interesting that we see that and we think, well, it's too little, too late for Ahab. But look at what God says in verse 29. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's day, I will bring about the disaster upon his house. So he's still going to die, and he's still going to die the way that the Lord said. But I'm not going to bring an end to his kingdom or his lineage or his house until after he's dead. And so even in this judgment of Ahab, we see God showing mercy to Ahab. Now, we're not talking about whether or not Ahab was saved. Did he really repent? Was it genuine? It seems to be. The Lord knows the heart. He he seems to be, at least in this instance and for this sin, he seems to be truly repentant and humble. And humbled himself before the Lord. The Lord sees it, and the Lord rewards it by saying, even though these other judgments are going to befall you, I won't let you see the end of your lineage and of your house. That won't happen until after you're dead. So the Lord shows mercy even in this intense time of judgment for Ahab and Jezebel. We see God's great grace and mercy toward those who repent. Ahab's ultimate salvation aside, we don't know. God is the judge. The story goes on to show more sin from Ahab, so who knows? He has nevertheless spared the destruction of his own house in his lifetime, and you know one of those uh, Sprolisms, R.C. Sprol. Uh, he says, you know, people people all the time say, why do bad things happen to good people? And and Sprol says, I hate to hear people ask that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, because that only happened once, and he volunteered he's talking about the Lord Jesus, the only good man to ever walk the face of the earth. And he volunteered for bad things to happen to him. So what Sproul is saying, and when you really read the message of the Bible, think, for instance, when the Tower of Siloam falls on the people and the disciples are asking Jesus, Oh Lord, what did those people do to incur that kind of judgment, that a tower falls on them? And Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Here's what you need to know. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why do bad things happen to good people? It only happened once, and he volunteered. The rest of us deserve any bad thing that happens to us. And so any good thing that happens to us is a gift solely of God's grace and mercy beyond what we ever deserve. I think it was Vody Bauckham, a pastor, preacher. You can find some sermons and things on YouTube. He talked about waking up with uh, God letting you wake up this morning with breath in your lungs as a gift of grace because he should have killed you in your sleep last night. And that's the truth, because of our sin. That's what we deserve from God, isn't it? Yet we're here. We enjoy life. We have food. We enjoy fellowship. We have our families. We enjoy happiness. We breathe. We have our right minds. All a gift of God's grace. And we see that poured out for Ahab here. We might say, yeah, well, he's still going to die. He's still going to get licked up by dogs. I mean, but, but God allows him this mercy that he does not deserve and has not merited. God's great grace and God's great mercy, even for the chief of sinners, Ahab. Coming into 1 Kings chapter 22, we're introduced to yet another prophet, A prophet named Micaiah. And again, every time we're introduced to a a new prophet, we're reminded of the the incorrectness of Elijah's words that he alone is left. We're introduced to this prophet Micaiah. And uh, the rest of this story is going to be the downward spiral of Ahab as it reveals the downward spiral of the rest of the nation and the storyline. In verses 1 through 5, there was this uh, peace between Syria and Israel, it says, for three years. Chapter 22, verse 2, But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, that's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, came to the king of Israel, that's Ahab in the northern kingdom, and the king of Israel, Ahab, said to his servants, Did you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. So Syria is occupying Israel's own territory. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, has come to visit Ahab, and Ahab is inciting him to war, saying, Hey, these people are occupying our land. And so far, we haven't said anything about it because we've been at peace for three years. But now, verse 4, he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead so we can take back what's ours? And look at verse, uh, the end of verse 4. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people is your people, my horses is your horses. So, yes, I will go with you into war. My people. My horses, my army from Judah will go with you, Ahab, Israel, into war. We are one nation, one people, one kingdom. We'll take back this land that belongs to us. Only, verse 5, Jehoshaphat said to the king, inquire first for the word of the Lord. These differences we see between Jehoshaphat and Ahab, Ahab has no concern for the word of the Lord. In fact, every time a prophet shows up for Ahab, He thinks it's a problem, and it is because of his sin. But the two times we've seen Elijah come to talk to Ahab, he called him a troublemaker and his enemy. (laughs) So he doesn't really care to know what the Lord has to say about anything, certainly not from one of these so-called prophets that he wants to kill and Jezebel wants to kill. But before Jehoshaphat does anything with Ahab, he says before we go into anything rashly, we need to hear what the word of the Lord says. And what goes on is that Jehoshaphat says to King Ahab, so are there any prophets that we could call? And Ahab says, oh yeah, I got a bunch of really good prophets that always tell me exactly what I want to hear. And Jehoshaphat says, but is there a true prophet of the Lord? And Ahab knows this one prophet, prophet named Micaiah. Uh, the problem with Micaiah is that Micaiah never tells Ahab what he wants to hear. Um, So look down at, uh, let's see, verse 8. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Yet there is one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. He never tells me what I want to hear. Let's call some other prophet. Let's call somebody else. The prophets of Baal are always good for a good, you know, fortune cookie uh, word. Yeah, go do, you do you, you be you, you be the, live the best life you can, King Ahab. But that other guy, he's always calling me on my sin and telling me bad things are going to happen. I don't want to hear from him. And Jehoshaphat says, Let it not be so, verse 8. So the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly, verse 9, Micaiah the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chinnanah made for himself horns of iron and says, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king." Verse 13, here comes Micaiah. Verse 13, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. Micaiah said, though, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me is that what I'll speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up in triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his own home in peace. So yeah, the prophet of the Lord says, I'll give you victory. But there's also this other part of the vision. I see all Israel scattered as sheep with no shepherd. And the king of Israel, Ahab, verse 18, says, Jehoshaphat, see, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Verse 19, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? The prophet says, I'll give you victory. Israel will win this war, Ahab, but it will also bring about your death. What does this incident with Micaiah reveal about Israel's spiritual state? Bring all the prophets, so-called. Let them prophesy all the good stuff. Give us the good word of the Lord. Tell us how great we are and how we're going to have victory. And don't tell us anything wrong and don't tell us about our sin and don't call us to repentance in other words, what? Tell me what I want to hear. Don't tell me the truth. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. You all said it, didn't you? Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies, he says to the prophets. And Israel is the same. we stopping their ears at the word of the Lord. We don't want to hear what the Lord really says because it's all that repentance and sin and holiness and all the stuff we've done wrong and all the stuff we need to change. And we don't really want to change anything, so just tell us what we want to hear. How much does this sound like, not just our modern society, but many in our churches? When the Word of God is preached, and it comes with conviction, and it might cut a little bit or a lot, and people say, I'm not going back to that church because that pastor stepped on my toes. You know, one of those marks of sanctification that I find so fascinating about Christians When you know someone is growing and maturing in their holiness and their walk with the Lord is when they'll tell you as the pastor, man, you really stepped on my toes this morning, and I needed that. Man, I love that. Why? Because when the children of God know the discipline of God, it doesn't come as something to be cast off and ignored or hated. When the children of God know the discipline of God, they love it because they know it's from the hand of their Father who loves them and is trying to make them more like Jesus. But so many in our churches and denominations and just society in general, no sin, no judgment, no repentance, let's not talk about any of that stuff. I want to tell you something that um, a church in our city, not our church, (laughs) a church in our city had a prophetic night a couple months ago. And they're going to have a prophetic night again this Sunday night. And I did not want to disparage the church completely or the pastor completely. But when I watched this prophetic night service, and, and granted we didn't hear all this, the so-called prophecies that were going on with people on the side, but the, the leader of this prophetic ministry that was coming through at this church, that was they were going to give people words from the Lord, right? And during the service as they sang songs, you can go over here and meet someone, and they're going to give you a word from the Lord. And have your phone out and record it because it's a word from the Lord for you. And the guy who was introducing the whole night said this. And I'm not lying. I will sh- you can go watch the video. He said, but be careful, though, about prophecy. Here's how, and this guy, the leader of the prophetic ministry now. Here's how you can tell if it's a word from the Lord or not. What That it comes true? No. <laughs> that, that it's specific and it has meaning to you? No. What do you say? Here's how you know if it's a word from the Lord. If it's encouraging to you. And he said, and I quote, If it's not encouraging, it is not from the Lord. I mean, they might have been in the same shoes as Ahab. I I think, I don't want to hear from Micaiah. He never tells me anything good. He always calls me on my sin. I don't want to hear that. How, how careful we have to be about what we call prophetic and prophecy in regard to the word of the Lord. Because the word of the Lord, while it can be encouraging, it can be motivating and inspiring and tell us that the Lord loves us and wants good for us and wants to prosper us, yes, but it can also say, hey, you need to repent. You need to turn, or, or turn away from what you're doing or else. We need that sometimes too. We don't need to throw away all that stuff. Um, what becomes of Ahab here in verse 38? Well, he gets shot in just the right place in his armor. Again, that's the, the, uh, the sovereignty of the Lord. Uh, Ahab thinks in verse 30 that he's going to get by by disguising himself as Jehoshaphat. Oh, when they think that I'm you, they won't come after me, he says to King Jehoshaphat. But they recognize very quickly that Jehoshaphat is not Ahab, and they go after Ahab. An arrow uh, pierces him, it says, between uh, a certain man drew his bow at random, verse 34. At random, there that is, and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to his driver, turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. And we go on to read that as he was driving and as he came, because of the wound there in his armor, the wound in his, in his chest, there was blood dripping down into the bottom of the chariot, verse 35. And verse 36, what did Micaiah say? Micaiah said, I see the people of Israel scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And what what happens in verse 36? At sunset, a cry went through the army. Every man to his city, every man to his country. What happens in verse 37? The king died. The shepherd died. Sheep are scattered. And as his blood is dripping down... Into the bottom of the chariot. Verse 38 They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and what happens? The dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it. What is the central message, though, in his death? Look at the end of verse 38. According to the word of the Lord, every promise that God makes, he keeps. And in this promise of judgment to Ahab, down to the last, grossest detail comes to pass. He's struck down in battle, his blood is licked up by the dogs, and Ahab is dead as Israel is scattered. We go on at the end of 1 Kings to see that um, even the relatively good reign of Jehoshaphat is flawed. It says he did right. He walked in the ways of his father Asa. Yet, verse 43, yet the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat was relatively good compared to Ahab. He was a devout man. He inquired of the Lord. He wanted God's leadership. He didn't necessarily participate in idolatry himself, but he also did not prevent Israel from worshiping idols. And he did not cut down the high places. And so we end with the death of Ahab and the death of Jehoshaphat with no fulfillment in sight for God's promise. What will happen? What of the promise that God made to David? I'll put one of your sons on your throne forever to reign in perfect justice and righteousness we come to second kings chapter 1 and we're kind of in the same the same narrative and remember in the in the jewish scriptures this is all one book the book of the kings and we've divided it for some reason to have part 1 and part 2 but it's really just one story and as you come to the end of first kings you say ahaziah reigns in israel and we pick up second kings chapter 1 with the reign of ahaziah reigning in israel but we see some marked differences already in verse 2 don't we Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Now Jehoshaphat, what did he say when when Ahab asked him to go to war? Let me first inquire of the Lord, Yahweh. What do we see here as we turn the page into the 2nd Kings in the reign of Ahaziah? Is he going to be any better than Ahab? No, because the first thing we see him doing in the narrative is inquiring of this manifestation of the God Baal. And anytime you see Baal, B-A-A-L, uh, in a conjunction with another word, whether it's Baal Zebul or Bael Zebub, you're talking about the same God, the false God Baal. You're talking about different manifestations of that same God. And the Israelites would go on to pick up that name Beelzebul, exalted Lord, Beelzebul, and they would say, he's not Beelzebul, he's Beelzebub. He's not the exalted God, he's literally the Lord of filth, or the Lord of the flies. A name that ends up being attributed to Satan. And so by the New Testament times, Beelzebub is just another name for Satan, the Lord of filth. The Lord of the Flies, akin to this false God of the Assyrians. God uses Elijah, once again, verses 3 through 12, to confront Ahaziah in his idolatry. Verse, thir- uh, verse 3 The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. Have you forgotten about me? Is there, am I not God? <laughs> you know, what am I, Chop liver that you have to go to Beelzebub and ask him? You can't come and ask me. You can't inquire of me, Ahaziah. So because of your idolatry, you're going to die in your bed. You won't recover you won't get well. So it's, it's funny that he didn't inquire of God, right? He inquired of the false god, but God answers him anyway. I want to send a prophet to tell you exactly what's going to happen to you. You're going to die right where you are. In verses 9 through 12, um, we see the king send the captain to Elijah. And twice he goes, uh, inquiring of Elijah, wanting Elijah to come down. And it says this in verse nine The king sent him captain fifty men, and with his fifty he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed his fifty. Verses eleven through twelve this happens again. Another captain, fifty more men go up. Oh Elijah, come down. You know the king doesn't like the answer you gave him, so come down and let's have a talk. Fire comes down again from heaven. Now, we, we don't have to go too far back to see what we're recalling here, right? Mount Carmel. And the fire coming down from the Lord on the altar. I'm the one true God. There is no other God. Uh, sorry, I went forward too, too quickly. There is no other God. Beelzebub is no God at all. And to prove it is it's God answering a challenge once again, isn't it? You've asked Beelzebub to answer your question, but I've answered your question. Furthermore, I'm going to send fire down from heaven two more times to kill a hundred of your men. Now, a third time it happens in verse 13, and God shows him mercy. Elijah comes down, and he's able to go and uh, converse with the king. And this is really the end of uh, the story of Elijah that ends here with the story of Ahaziah. Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? The assumption is that he dies. And then we come to this final chapter also in the story of Elijah and his successor, Elisha. Verses 6 through 14, we see this interesting story. And, you know, unlike some of the miracles in the Old Testament, there's not a lot of buildup to this story. It's, it's not that they come to the Jordan and, oh my goodness, how are we going to get across? You know, like it was at the Red Sea or like it was in Joshua chapter 3 with the crossing of the Jordan. There wasn't some mass necessity for this to happen. It's just Elijah and Elisha walking and, and just kind of almost to pass the time, Elijah, as if just to say, now watch this, he rolls up his cloak and smacks the river and the Jordan River parts And they both go across on dry land. Now we're going to read that as Elijah is carried off into heaven and then Elisha takes his mantle, the first thing he does is turn around and say, okay, where are you, God? Rolls up his cloak, smacks the water, water splits for him too. So we see Elijah and Elisha interacting with the River Jordan, and we see this familiar picture of the water drying up. Elisha, Elijah's successor, is the Joshua to Elijah's Moses. Remember we saw those those uh, similarities between the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Moses. And here we see it again. Here in the wilderness, here at the crossing of the Jordan, just as they came through the Red Sea, just as the people of Israel came through the Jordan, Elijah parts the waters and then Elisha parts the waters. Verse 15, we see that the spirit of Elijah now rests on Elisha. As they cross the river in verse 9, Elijah asks, Elisha, what shall I do for you? And Elisha says, verse 9, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And then verse 15, after Elijah has departed, and Elisha is his clear successor, when he appears to the sons of the prophets, they see him and they say, verse 15, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. But in the middle, this spectacular miracle takes place, and again, there's no build-up. Elijah doesn't say this is going to happen. There's no dramatic build-up to this happening. It just kind of, in verse 11, is just this passing phrase. As they still went on and talked, behold, they're just walking and talking. Oh, behold, uh, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah was carried off in a whirlwind to heaven. It does remind me, uh, Mike was reminding me before Bible study of, of Enoch in Genesis, how it just, you know, he was and he was not, for the Lord took him. And it's just this little passing sentence as if this is just a normal thing that happens sometimes. People just, you know, disappear off into heaven. When it's not, because there in Genesis, this guy dies, this guy dies, this guy dies, this guy dies, but Enoch, he just went up to heaven. The same thing happens here of Elijah. They're just walking, they're just talking, and suddenly there's these chariots of fire, and the next thing you know, Elijah's being carried off into heaven, not having gone through death. Why do you think God chooses to translate, that's the word we use for that kind of just passing into heaven, why do you think God chooses to translate Elijah in this way? Well, we see fire, God's glory, God's holiness, God's purity. We've seen that before in Elijah's ministry. We see chariots, we see horses, there's might, there's God as the captain of the heavenly hosts. And he so chooses to say for Elijah, there is more to come for the ministry of Elijah. In this symbolic way, he prevents him from tasting death. Because in a symbolic way, he's saying about Elijah, there's more to come from the ministry of Elijah. Lastly, tonight, verses 23 through 24, one of my favorite Bible stories. This is a fun one to tell your children. Um, Elisha's leaving. Elijah's been caught away up into heaven. He's going to Bethel. And as he's coming to Bethel, um, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him. They're making fun of Elisha, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. They're making fun of Elisha, clearly a bald man. So verse 24, Elisha turns around. When he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. It's like, "Why, why is this story here? Is it not a happy ending for the story of Elijah? And we see Elijah's ministry kicked off in this bloody way because some boys made fun of him. And God kills 42 of them with two She bears? I love that it's she bears. (laughs) Why do we think that God's judgment is so severe in verses 23 through 24? Remember this. The people's treatment of the prophet is often a picture of their treatment of God. Their rejection and their mockery of Elisha as the man of God wasn't just some passing innocent boys just making fun of an old man that had a bald head. It was a revelation of the heart of the people being passed down to their children that was a hatred for God and a hatred for his word and a hatred for his messengers. It manifested itself in this way, and God was showing the people through this massacre what was going to happen to them if they didn't repent and turn to him as well. Let's do these blanks very quickly as we close the story tonight. What's it all about? Number one, this is not the last time we see Elijah. If I spelled it right for you. Elijah, This is not the last time we see Elijah. Remember I said his ministry wasn't done. John the Baptist appears, and this is a direct quote from Luke 117. Jesus said he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was the messenger that Malachi said would come before the Messiah came. John the Baptist operating under the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist also ministered in the wilderness, and he also wore a cloak of hair, camel hair. Elijah ministered in the wilderness. He wore a robe of hair, a peculiar guy, with peculiar wardrobe. We see that picked up by John the Baptist. So there's, a, there's a tie here. Elijah and Elisha's crossing of the Jordan points back to Joshua, Joshua chapter 3. Remember they came to the Jordan, it was split before them just like the Red Sea did. But It also points forward to Jesus who was baptized in the Jordan River as an identification with his people. And just as the people crossed into the promised land via the Jordan, and just as Elijah finished his ministry and Elisha started his ministry at the Jordan, Jesus begins his ministry at the Jordan. Not like Israel, and not like the failed prophets and kings, but as the one whom God has chosen. Elijah was taken away by God's glory into heaven, but God's glory rests on Jesus, because as he's baptized in the Jordan, what does it say? The heavens were opened, the Spirit descends like a dove, and we hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Elijah appears again in the Gospels. Do you know where? Transfiguration. Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Jesus appears there in all of his glory, shining like the sun. And who's there with him but Elijah and Moses. These embodiments of the law and the prophets. And what are they doing? They're pointing to Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament, they're personified by Elijah and Moses. Pointing to Jesus and his coming departure or his coming exodus. And that's the word that Luke uses. We see God's ultimate lawgiver, God's ultimate prophet is the Lord Jesus, because he alone, just as God was trying to tell them all through first and second Kings, He alone is Lord. Amen. Next week, we'll pick up into chapter 3 of 2 Kings and continue our our story. Things are not going to get better, so it just is what it is. We'll see how things get worse. Join us next week. be encouraging for you. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day and every day that you give us to serve you, to love you, to magnify you. I ask that you would help us to do that by your Holy Spirit. Give us that same spirit and power that was on Elijah to serve you without fear, to serve you with boldness so that uh, even if we're not carried away by chariots of fire, uh, when we see you, we will glorify you, and we will bask and revel in the glory of God forever and ever and ever. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.